Hello, and welcome to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, part of the 2017 National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge. I'm your host, Dr. Mehul Dalal, and today we are going to be talking about succession planning in public health with our guest expert, Dr. Jean Alanji. I've known Jean for several years in her capacity as a senior consultant at NACDD, and, and uh, in my opinion, she's one of those key influencers and intellects often working behind the scenes and playing a key role in advancing understanding in our field. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with her today. Jean, I want to start off by letting you introduce yourself and what you do and how you ended up doing a deep dive into uh, succession planning. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about this with you. I came to public health with an interest in how decisions are made, what kind of evidence we use to decide how we're going to make the most impact with public health. And over the years, I have observed, as many have, that we know a lot about the evidence behind interventions, but less about the evidence behind how we uh, organize our work, how we're structured, how we forecast the work that needs to be done. And I was interested in what the, the knowledge and science around management and leadership in other disciplines could be applied to public health. And so that's what we've been working on in the last couple of years at NACDD is looking at how management and leadership practices in public health can be applied here. And that's what I did my dissertation on as well in my doctoral program, what makes a chronic disease unit effective in state-level public health. That's really interesting because that kind of links directly into some of the topics that we're going to discuss in more depth today around succession planning. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we can implement evidence-based programs, probably a little bit less time than we should about what are the evidence-based practices in our administration and management. So I'm looking forward to, to jumping into this topic. So let's, let's go ahead and jump in and start with a high-level overview of what's going on with the public health workforce. We actually, from my understanding, we have some good recent survey data on this. So what does that data tell us? We do. The DeBeaumont Foundation and ASTO did a survey last year that they called Public Health Wins that surveyed 19,000 state health agency workers in 37 states. And they asked questions about what your background is, how long have you been working in public health, how satisfied you are with your career, what do you think the skills are that are needed, all that kind of stuff. What they found out was that 79% of state health workers are somewhat or very satisfied with their jobs, which is great for us. Um, We know that the pay for what we do isn't tremendously high, but the satisfaction is pretty good. 38% of respondents are planning to leave their jobs by 2020. 25% of those are retiring altogether. And another 13% are leaving either for other jobs in public health, that was a smaller percent, or leaving public health altogether. Um, And we know that Latinos, men, and younger workers are underrepresented in the workforce. The top competency gaps that the survey found were in policy analysis and development, business and financial management, systems thinking, which really plays in a lot to succession management, social determinants of public health, evidence-based public health practice, and engaging diverse communities. Um, So all of this is a current gap and plays into where we're forecasting the workforce is going to need to go. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting and so vital to have an assessment of our baseline, where we are right now, in order to do the forecasting, which I know we're going to touch on a little bit later in the conversation. 
But I wanted to pause to just highlight the fact that the, the sheer number or percentage of the employees that reported that they're going to retire or maybe move to different positions. Uh, now, I don't know what the, what it is like in other industries, but it seems like that that in itself seems like something that managers should really be keeping in mind, both in terms of their specific employees, but also in general for public health workforce needs. Absolutely. I mean, 38% is a substantial number, and 2020 isn't very far away. Oh, that's right, because that was in that, in that five-year time frame. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure some public health departments are feeling this already as it comes on. We're going to touch on this a little later, but the diversity issue is also interesting. You mentioned certain minority populations being underrepresented in the workforce, and there's a lot of discussion about how the workforce is its ideal if it represents the, the population it serves, so that in itself is an issue. But I think you also, from what I understand, there was some generational diversity issues as well. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Sure. What we're hearing from chronic disease directors around the country is that at working, managing a team that spans up to four generations is having challenges that they, they didn't anticipate. So we've got baby boomers down to millennials whose expectations of what it means to have a professional job and how you behave in a professional how you sort of think that a career path is going to go and how you engage in that professional setting is really different across generations. So millennials, and this is, this is really putting, speaking very generally about it, but millennials in general don't expect to work in one place for their entire career, which is at odds with how the retirement system and government jobs is set up, for example. They expect to have some short-term wins, so sort of rapid turnover in the kinds of tasks that they're given and the kinds of things they can try. They're more willing to experiment than perhaps the government system has been set up to allow in terms of what you do in your day-to-day work. And they want to, their attitudes about working outside the office and in a situation that would have five years ago been considered non-traditional is very different from somebody who started their career, you know, 35 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that sort of gels with some of the personal experience I have with uh, hiring and retaining folks that are on the younger side of the spectrum. I mean, they certainly, I can relate to the fact that they want to build some experience and then perhaps move on to something else. And that certainly figures into how we think about our hiring decisions and, and other things like that. Yeah. The survey provides us a lot of good context for, for what's going on with the workforce in general, but I want to jump in right into some of the content around succession planning, look at some of the key concepts around succession planning. I actually like the term succession management, which I heard for the first time in your workshop a couple of months ago. So I wonder if, Jean, you could sort of set a roadmap for us in terms of succession planning or succession management, whatever you want to call it. Sure. So when we think of succession planning, that often defaults to more replacement management. So you have somebody who is leaving or has recently left and you have a position available and you backfill it. We call that replacement planning. This approach keeps the FTE protected, which in a government system is a key goal often. If you don't protect the FTE, oftentimes you lose it. But it yeah, I agree, I agree with that and right? relate to that too. <laughs> Yeah, which is dangerous because we covet those FTEs. Once they're gone, they're gone, and they're few and far between. So what that doesn't do is help you position to do the future 
the future work. So trying yeah, to I wanted, I wanted to the, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, yeah. the the future work is, you know, I you know from an industry perspective, or if you're in a private sector perspective, you sort of have your your business plan, your product, your long term vision, and your, and the services you're going to provide, and what kind of market share you're going to have. It's a little bit different in the public sector. So, I I, I like this concept that I've seen called talent forecasting. And in fact, I, again, yeah. I heard it for the first time in your workshop. And when I heard it, something clicked and something, it really kind of connected the dots for me in, in terms of thinking about this. So can you walk us through what that is and what that means? Sure. Talent forecasting. You know, this is another way to think of the diversity of your workforce too, that the skills and abilities that you need to do the work today is in your in your team is really different from what you needed even 10 years ago. And we can expect that to change again over the next five and 10 years. Trying to figure out what those skills and talents are is a challenge for sure. There's no magic way to do that that I've found yet. Um, but right now you probably need someone in your chronic disease unit who understands how electronic health records work, for example. You need somebody who understands how policy change at the local level impacts health decision-making and health behavior. Those are wildly different sets of skills, and you as the chronic disease director have to figure out how to manage those wildly different sets of skills and figure out where they come from. So, looking ahead to say we're going to need to work with health systems, there are going to be infrastructure projects happening in the next four years. How do we get health to the table for those infrastructure discussions? And what talent do we need to have there to do it? You know, are some of the ways you've got to look around and see what's on the horizon and what's just over the horizon that we haven't imagined yet. Yeah, it seems like it's a process that seems very iterative and maybe punctuated by some major changes as funding priorities change can be kind of daunting to even think about how, how to go about talent forecasting if all of a sudden there's a change in direction in terms of funding and, and what right. is expected of us. So, but, but it seems like it's still important to be more systematic about it. One of the things that I've found interesting, and I don't know if you want to talk about it now or, or later, is the fact that how this kind of can connect into a, a greater strategic plan or a leadership development plan. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we have we have based our our training activities for the association on a framework that is in a textbook by a guy named Rothwell. And yeah, we can link to that when in when we get to the the, the blog post that is going to come come with the show. So we'll provide those links for for folks who want to awesome. find out more. Awesome. Rothwell lays out seven steps to succession planning, but in practice. Like you said, this is cyclical. It's not an initiative that you do and then comes to an end. Succession management keeps going, and we think of it more like the quality improvement mindset that we've been adopting in chronic disease prevention and health promotion over the last couple of years, that you know, you've got to make the commitment that succession management is important. You've got to understand the present work and people requirements that you've got. You've got to look at individual performance. What skills do you have present and how are people applying them and is it meeting the, the needs that you currently have? And then that comes that forecasting piece of it. What is the future work that we see coming and what are the skills and abilities that we're going to need to do that future work? And then looking at future individual potential. Who on your team can meet those potential future needs? Are you going to have to look outside to fill some of those needs? Um, and then how are you going to close the gap and how are you going to evaluate that you're meeting those needs and then 
starting the loop again. And actually thinking of it as a, as a loop is a little fleeting because most of this is going on at the same time. You don't move necessarily from one step to the other. I think the other important thing I want to make sure to mention here too is that this has to be linked to your strategic vision for what's happening. So you're looking at strategy, structure, and talent all sort of at the same time. Your strategy, what is your strategy for how you're moving forward? Do you have the structure in place to meet it? And do you have the talent in that structure to do that work? But each one of those pieces informs the other. So they are all happening at the same time too. Yeah, that's what resonated with me, that link between the, the, the succession management, talent forecasting, and the link to the broader strategic plan. I think that was really important. I, I want to delve a little bit into this this identifying internal candidates because, you know, again, from, from the government agency standpoint, uh, it's, we're not always nimble, if I could put it that way, about uh, <laughs> acquiring external talent. So, you know, there's this there's a, a bit of a balance to be had between identifying high potential individuals versus kind of a, a plan that covers everyone in terms of their development and how that ties into a succession for particular positions. Can you talk a little bit about that balance? There's the pros and cons, I think, to, to each approach. Yeah, there really is. Um, and so there, there are three, three approaches here, I think. One is the, looking externally for the talent that you need. One is identifying who has high potential and nurturing that potential. And then the third is, you know, what JFK call, talked about is the all boats rise idea, that if you nurture everyone, everyone's potential is nurtured and and then you can choose from that bigger pool the the pros and cons you know are you you're in danger of missing something great if you just nurture the high performers or if you look external the all boats rise approach takes a lot of resources i think probably something that draws on each of these is probably the right place to sit that there are some things you're going to have to go externally for there are some people who are going to really thrive, high performers who can really thrive with attention and guidance about where they might go in the future. But then there's some level of nurturing potential that needs to happen across the board for your team, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, because many of, many of the folks, despite their, their retirement stats, which are certainly uh, a re- realistic, and, and at least I speak for my agency, but there's also folks that are, that are, are, are looking at this job as something that they're going to be in for a long time. So uh, it is, yeah. uh, at least from my perspective and from a public agency perspective, seems very important to, to have that all, all, all boats rising uh, mentality uh, along with the, and coupled with the, with the high potential mentality. I, I, I want to, uh, sort of stay on a related point here uh, because we keep touching on this issue about how uh, the government system and hiring is not as, as nimble as many of us would like. <laughs> but have you seen some innovation in this area in in your examination of this issue? Are, are, are folks able to, I don't want to say work around, but at least identify new processes or any processes to, to get around the common problem we all face around this? Yeah, there are a couple of things that we've that we've seen. The first is Gene O'Connor, who's the chronic disease director in Georgia, has taken a look at the turnover that they experience. And she's decided to consider that maybe this is an opportunity to 
impact the workforce, the public health workforce in Georgia around her, that maybe training folks up who then leave is not a terrible thing because she's able to impart, you know, the chronic disease prevention health promotion perspective on folks who are then taking that out in the world. So she's propagating this vision of how public health can work. So that's, that's one thing to just well, I like that framing. It's that's okay great. To, yeah. You put resources into someone and it's okay that they go because they're taking that out into the wider world. There's an, a lot of states that we hear from who have trouble because the human resources setup doesn't match what they're trying to do in public health. So the job descriptions that are available and the career track that folks can do don't really work with the work we're trying to do. So a couple of states have engaged with their state human resources to redo job descriptions. This is not for the faint of heart. This is a long-term effort to make this kind of change, but it's going to really pay off in the, in the long run to have these changes in place. So that's, that's something to take a look at strategically about how you can influence how HR functions. Yeah, well, that um, seems like something that the whole, uh, you know, the whole agency could get behind. It doesn't just have to be the chronic disease division or unit that, that has to take this. It seems like that could be a benefit the entire agency. Absolutely. I mean, in some states, there really aren't any public health job descriptions at all. In other states, the public health-related job descriptions are all either health educators or clinicians, which isn't necess- isn't really reflective of the work that we're doing now. So. Yeah, just yeah. from personal yeah, experience, we get a lot out. of health applicants from those with experience in the healthcare and direct service delivery field, and and where you know our, our forecasting would uh, say that we should be having new talent in the in the policy and systems field. So it's it is interesting. Right. It's certainly an issue that I've seen with my hiring systems and hiring processes, and I imagine that's shared pretty broadly. Yeah, we hear it. We hear it all the time. Yeah. So it's really committing to, it seems like we really need to make change. We need to commit to a process of working with our, our partners in, in HR and, and the other uh, agencies involved in the hiring to try to make some changes. Um, yeah. It's not what I wanted to hear, but I think that's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming up against the break here, and when we okay. return, we are going to uh, delve into some practical applications of these concepts. Uh, so stay with us. Hi, this is Dr. Mehul Dalal with a quick break here. I know in the day-to-day bustle of work, it's not easy to study and apply leadership best practices. I also know that leadership is not about a particular individual who happens to be in a supervisory position. It's about working together to identify and cultivate these skills and capacities in each other and at all levels of the organization. Leadership skills should be foundational to all public health professionals as our field confronts change both from within and without. It's my hope that this year's National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge, Learn, Lead, and Thrive, will draw attention to best practices, industry-leading thinking, and most importantly, practical advice on how to implement these concepts and techniques in our daily work. Please tune in to other episodes of this podcast where I talk with leading experts tackling important questions around professional development, succession planning, managing up, job satisfaction, and more. We've lined up exciting conversations with folks like Dr. Ursula Bauer, Dr. Gina Alonji, Dr. Mark Lipton, Professor of Management at the New School, Drs. Amy Rosniewski and David Berg, both professors at Yale, and Dr. Ross Brownson of Washington University. To access the podcast, go to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge webpage found at chronicdisease.org, where you'll also find links and resources related to this and other podcasts in the series. 
Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back. Now let's pick it up and put some of these concepts that we, we discussed earlier and put them to work. Jean, can you give us an overview of some best practices and what managers need to keep in mind on a kind of pragmatic uh, week-to-week or day-to-day level? Yeah. What we see in the literature around success in management as best practices includes the cyclical and continuous identification of a process focusing on future leaders. So like we said earlier, making sure that this is part of your regular work. Think of it like working out. You can't just work out once a year for your heart health. You've got to you've got to keep up your physical activity all the time. It shouldn't fall off your calendar. A core set of leadership and succession management competencies should be followed, and that's what we've talked about this morning, that link between the strategic plan and long-term goals. And then test and simulation, which is giving people a chance to try out new skills and see how they do. We have also looked at making sure that you are spending time coaching and mentoring individually with your team, making sure that doesn't fall off your calendar too, that whatever that half hour a week is or every two weeks that you spend with one or two folks is a reliable time for them to be with you. Works much better than trying to schedule things ad hoc in terms of the amount of progress you see in somebody's developing potential. When you talk about the coaching and mentoring, that's separate from kind of a normal supervisory one-on-one meeting. Is there something that goes separate there? Or in fact, does it even have to be uh, the direct supervisor doing this? Excellent point, Mayhul. This doesn't have to be the direct supervisor. And in fact, you might want to help your folks find folks who aren't you to do this so that they're getting a little bit of different perspective. It can be people that you are uh, supervising, but this is different from the supervisory role that you have with them. This is a time where you are helping them identify what they're interested in developing and getting to that development, getting that to happen. I would caution you, though, this is interestingly in the literature, we see that people tend to mentor people who look and think and behave like they do. So not just in terms of race, ethnicity, but people who have similar personality traits to you and similar skilled, you know, background to you. So if you're looking at how you might diversify your team, both in perspective and skill and race, ethnicity and gender, you'll want to check yourself on that, on that implicit bias that we all have. And it's just human nature. That's just how we work. But if you can check yourself on that and make sure you're looking broadly for who you want to give that time to, to nurture, who those potential high performers are, that they don't look exactly like you, that's a a great thing to check yourself on. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point. It also speaks to the point that maybe, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to take on this coaching and mentoring role as a supervisor, you may even have to think about whether you're the right person for that role. And you, Absolutely. You might, encourage them to seek, you know, not someone else, but at least an additional coach or mentor to help them through that. I think that that seems like a good practical strategy as well. Even thinking outside the agency, I think there's a lot of networks. I mean, NACDD is a perfect example where you can connect with folks outside of the agency and provide some sort of piece of the mentoring and coaching that might be helpful. It's very hard for lots of folks to go find themselves a mentor. So if you as a supervisor can help make that link for them, all the better. Yeah, that makes sense. And I and I want to touch on a related point around coaching and mentoring and, and staff development, which is 
I think this idea of an individualized development plan has become common in many places of employment, both private sector and, and public sector. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and what would it take to implement? Yeah, and I'll just call them IDPs because that's the common parlance now. And this is a great role for you as supervisor to use this to use your supervisory time and influence with the person to monitor the IDP and develop IDP. This is a plan that actually goes in writing, and it, in many states, this is part of the human resources package around each employee. And then every year, an IDP is developed and updated about. What are the skills to achieve in the next year? What are your performance goals? What are your training goals? And then that's monitored in your annual review. How did, how did it go? And this is a great place to put in things that are very skill and sort of discrete experience related that you want to improve your writing skills. You want to take a, a class on fiscal management. You want to work with the government affairs liaison in your office to understand how budgeting and policy recommendations go up the chain. Something that's very specific like that is great to put in the IDP. Yeah, no, I think that's a great concept. And I think because uh, these are collaboratively developed, at least ideally speaking, they're collaboratively developed between the, the supervisor and the and the employee, it really helps make that link between what the employee gives them a chance to think about what they really need and has that link to what the program or what the agency needs. So the development mm-hmm. plans are oriented in the direction of what the programmatic needs are, which is always a good thing. I think one thing that you mentioned, but I want to just highlight it again, which because I, I think it's a great idea, and it seems like something very simple to implement, you know, kind of kind of right away, at least for the right person, is this idea of stretch assignments. And I think you touched on it briefly, but I wonder if we can revisit that for a second and and talk a bit about what that is. Yeah, stretch assignment is a chance to take on more or a different kind of responsibility than you than you do in your regular day to day work to try a new task. And what's what's The critical part of this is that it's an opportunity to fail at something and to try again, because that's where real leadership learning happens. So this could be something like sending someone to represent you at a partner meeting, and then depending on where this person's comfort level was and skill level was, you would help them prepare by saying, this is the message I want you to take, or this is what I want you to bring back from that meeting, so that they've got some parameters around it, but they've got a chance to go out there and and give it a go. It's got to be something that's okay if it goes a little bit wrong, and you've got to, as a supervisor, sometimes that's hard (laughs) to send folks out where it might go wrong, but like I said, that is a great teacher. Yeah, right, yeah. as long as you adopt sort of a, a learn from, from failure mentality and the failure isn't too catastrophic, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yep, it really uh, is the QI uh, yeah. approach we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that all fits into what we talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we talked about concepts and best practices, and there's probably a whole slew of specific tools if once you're, you know, delving into this that one could use, but maybe we can touch on a couple one of the things that, that I, I admit I don't have a clear concept of what this is 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 the the desk reference. Seems like almost a, a personal Bible, for lack of a better word, of what you're doing and what your responsibilities are. Can you talk about what a desk reference yeah. is and what purpose it serves and how would we go about preparing it? A desk reference is a 
tool that lets somebody come in and step into your job if you're not there. And it can be as simple as a list of these are our key points of contact for our key partners and key deadlines that we're working towards and the objectives of of what we're trying to do. And it's specific to your position, less specific to the entire, not, not about the entire project, but specific to your position and what you work on in that project. Uh, so it's so less it scary a, than I thought it was. Yes. <laughs> or at least it can be less scary um, than I <laughs> It can be really, it can be pretty straightforward. You could put yeah. it together in a matter of a couple of hours. Some folks we talk to have been much more in-depth than that, and it's something that they add to and check over time. So if you think about doing it in pieces, it's probably a lot less daunting than trying to create it. But if you ask folks as an initial exercise to sit down and say, if, if you're not here tomorrow and somebody's going to come in and, and accomplish everything that you were going to do tomorrow, what would they need to know? Not just keep your seat warm, but to do the stuff that you had planned to do tomorrow, what would they need to know? And that's yeah. a great initial way to start thinking about what am I doing every day and how would I teach somebody about that? Yeah, and that's a real good tip. Again, just easily implementable at your next, you know, one-on-one meeting to ask them to do that and follow up with you on it. Yeah. And and also the guidance of not having to spend a whole day on it is also good. Maybe spend, a, maybe spend an hour or two and try to figure that out. I think that's great. So lots of good stuff. I think we're going to try to get some links up that will point people in the right direction, maybe even provide a sample. I don't know if we have one, but we we could try to do that as well. We're getting close to the end of the time here, but I want to touch on one other kind of tool before before we wrap up. You know, we talked really early on about the competency gaps that were identified, and are there tools around to help us assess staff competency and try to, you know, kind of look at it systematically, and what are they and where can we find them? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways to look at competency assessment. One is the individual person, what their skills are and where their their personal gaps and skill are, and one is looking at your team. And I would suggest that the team assessment is really important for forecasting what your needs are going to be. So uh, looking at both of these would be great. The Council on Linkages is an effort of some national partners to define for all of public health what competencies are for the public health workforce. There are some recommendations that they have that are specific to chronic disease. It's a gigantic, complicated set of ideas, but it's a a good thing to to look at. A little bit quicker to implement is the NACDD competency assessment, and this can be used for both teams and individuals and was just finalized by the the board, I think. So that's available from NACDD to take a look at, and it's a self-assessment that folks do. There's also an organizational assessment that we have called FAST, that's the Public Health Framework Assessment Tool, and that helps you look across your chronic disease unit at what are the things that you do well, the the management and leadership and organizational practices that you do well or that you want to develop for the unit is a third way to take a look at that. Yeah, no, that that seems like a great great tool, and uh, again, we'll try to link it up and, and so folks can access it, although I'm sure part of it's already up on the NACDD website. So before we close, I want to circle back and ask you if there's anything important that we missed that we didn't cover that you'd want to cover. I would just echo again that you know this is really a quality improvement mindset. I think this kind of work in particular is 
is sometimes subject to that and a perfect is the enemy of the good um, conundrum that we face where if we, it's just such a big thing to think about that sometimes it's the thing that falls off our calendar every day because there's too many other things that need work. But if we take little pieces of it and just keep working on that and keep building on that, this, this is so strategically important. It needs to be an ongoing effort for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the impetus for this was the feeling that we had so many urgent uh, demands and requests at our uh, at our desk every day that that was almost a tyranny of borrowed yes. a term called tyranny of the urgent uh, as part of the impetus yes. to to try to get some of this material out there and applicable for folks. So I think we can all relate to that. How can folks learn a little bit more about this if they want to delve a little bit deeper? Any books or materials that you might recommend? Yes, I mentioned a book by Rothwell that's called Effective Succession Planning, and we can we can make sure you have a link to that. There, the De Beaumont and Asto articles on the Public Health Wins Survey will probably also be of interest to folks. And there's a beautiful infographic that goes with that that we can get to the link for. Also, the Office of Personnel Management, which is opm.gov for the executive branch of the federal government has a whole section on resources for succession planning and succession management that is a great place to, to go. And then we've got our resources too that NACDD has collected in our Chronic Disease Directors Forum on the website. Great. That's great to hear. Dr. Gina Lange, thank you very much for being our guest today. Thanks so much, Michael. So today we covered a lot of territory. We looked at important concepts such as talent forecasting, diversity, and this important concept of generational diversity and managing across different generations and outlooks, those different generations. We talked about practical applications such as stretch assignments, which I'm eager to try out, and uh, both for myself and, and assigned to, to some of my staff. And we talked about uh, IDPs, Individualized Development Plans. But it still seems like we only scratched the surface, so please check the Learn, Lead, and Thrive President's Challenge blog post at chronicdisease.org. Link to the President's Challenge part of that uh, webpage, and you'll find these resources up, and we'll provide as many links to the mentioned references on this show as we can. And thank you for listening, and tune in to future podcasts in the series where we will be continuing the conversation with leaders and experts.